Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Wise, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Part 2 of the Great Storm of 1900. Before we begin today, I want to mention one thing. I'm trying to get a little bit better at the audio settings of this podcast. I would love your feedback. If you will, email me at host at wiseabouttexas.com or tweet me at wiseabouttexas or leave a comment on the website, www.wiseabouttexas.com. Let me know what you think about the sound of this podcast. I want it to come across loud and clear on all the platforms, so I'm doing a little work trying to get a little better at the audio production side. As I said in the introductory episode many months ago, this is a one-man show. I do the research, I do the writing, I do the hosting, and for better or worse, I do the audio production. So let me know how it's sounding to you and what you think I can do better. I would appreciate it. Well, as I mentioned earlier, this is part two of the Great Storm of 1900. Part one was a story of the prosperity of Galveston and the preparation or lack of preparation for what would become one of the most intense hurricanes to ever make landfall in the United States. And we learned a little bit about what the U.S. Weather Service thought they knew about hurricanes, and we learned a lot about what they didn't know. I released a bonus episode last week, and the bonus episode covered the actual night of the storm, September 8, 1900. And I didn't feel like that we could cover the 1900 storm without talking about the absolutely horrible night and the terror that the people felt as they went through that experience. Part two, however is a story of hope. And today I want to talk about what they saw the morning of September 9th, 1900, after the storm had moved. And I want to talk about, now that was not exactly a happy experience, but I want you to listen for the spirit of Texas in this episode, because part two of the 1900 storm, the recovery and the rebuilding of Galveston, is really a testament to the spirit of Texas and the spirit of the citizens of Galveston. And it has a happy ending, even though it was a struggle. And that's uh, what we're going to talk about today. First, let's go back and recap briefly where we were in Part 1 leading up to September 8, 1900. Galveston was extraordinarily prosperous. It was a growing city was the largest city in Texas. You know, Galveston, I didn't mention this in part one, but Galveston was the safest deep water harbor in Texas. It had been used uh, going way back. You know, Gene Lafitte, the pirate, uh, used Galveston as as his safe harbor and his base of operations in the early 1800s because the Galveston harbor is uh, not only deep enough for those ships, but it's relatively easy to get into and was considered at the time very safe and so it had been used uh, consistently through the years as the favored port of texas Uh, the u.s weather service chief in galveston isaac klein believed that uh, he was the authority on tropical weather in the united states and he may very well have been But what he didn't understand is that they didn't know, they, the collective 
weather service scientists didn't know nearly as much about tropical weather as they thought they did. And Isaac Klein believed that hurricanes would not hit Texas, and if they did, it would be an accident. Now, we talked in episode one, we named several hurricanes, including two relatively recent ones to 1900, the 1876 hurricane in Indianola and the 1886, or excuse me, 1875 hurricane and 1886 hurricane. Uh, the 1875 hurricane basically destroyed Indianola. They tried to rebuild. The 1886 hurricane finished the job. And the town of Indianola, the second largest port in the state, was no more. There were other hurricanes throughout the 1800s. The, the patrons of Wise About Texas got a bonus episode on Racer Storm, the 1837 hurricane. And uh, the 1837 hurricane, incidentally, may very well have been as strong as the 1900 storm. We don't know. Nobody was measuring it. But it it wiped out what little there was on Galveston Island in 1837. So the 1900 storm really was the second time that Galveston had been totally demolished by a strong hurricane. Anyway, there were several hurricanes that had hit the Texas coast. But Isaac Klein, nonetheless, believed that to be an accident. And he also thought that the hurricanes that would hit Texas, if they did, would not be as strong as hurricanes that would hit, for example, the East Coast. Another thing that he believed was that hurricanes would always turn northeast, somewhere in the neighborhood of the Florida Keys. And so when the 1900 storm blew up and, and passed over Cuba, the U.S. Weather Service thought that the storm turned to the northeast. And they issued cables to that effect. And the people in Galveston uh, were not even aware that there was a hurricane in the Gulf the few days that they would have had to prepare, and, and really the only way to prepare for this 1900 storm would have been to evacuate. But they, they figured the storm was northeast. Isaac Klein thought it was northeast. What had really happened, uh, the, the weather people in the Florida Keys thought that the storm had gone to the northeast, because the Keys really didn't feel any effects of a tropical storm that Cuba had felt. Cuba had reported the hurricane, and the people in the Keys weren't feeling it. And so they thought the storm must have, as hurricanes always do, except by rare accident, turned northeast into the Atlantic. What they didn't realize was that high pressure had pushed the track of the storm south as you look at the map, but really moving to the west headed straight across the Gulf for Galveston, a Gulf that was very warm in 1900. And the hurricane just grew steadily. One interesting point that we should consider, and I didn't look up the detailed census records of Galveston, but you got to remember that Galveston, as the most prosperous city in Texas, was growing, I would make a wager faster than any city in the area, and by the area, I include New Orleans. And even if it wasn't growing at a faster rate, it was growing at a very quick rate. And what that means is that the people in 1900 probably had never experienced any serious tropical weather. The odds are, if you ask your average citizen, the odds are that they hadn't been in town that long, so they wouldn't have been familiar with tropical weather. Now, I'm, I know what I'm talking about here because we went through in Houston, Texas, a hurricane in 2008. So many people in 2008 
had never been through a hurricane. It had been 25 years since the last one had hit Houston, and so they didn't really understand what a hurricane was like. Well, go back to Galveston in 1900, and you have that problem magnified because people would have been coming to Galveston from all, and were coming to Galveston from all over the world. And so it wasn't as if they were moving across the state of Texas and had been uh, privy to news reports of hurricanes and were familiar with the effects of the tropical weather and how to prepare and whether to evacuate. They had none of that knowledge. Even the longtime residents of Galveston had heard, unless they knew someone from Indianola, they had heard at best secondhand information of the Indianola hurricanes, the, the latest of which had occurred 14 years before. The, the seafaring community in Galveston uh, would have been aware of approaching tropical weather uh, probably more than anyone else. But even if you were aware of that, you would have no way to know how intense it was going to be. If you go back and you read some of the weather service um, knowledge, body of knowledge, back in the 1800s, they, they weren't quite reading tea leaves. They did have a barometer, but they were observing the sky and observing the behavior of the gulf and observing the behavior of the bay and maybe even observing the behavior of the birds to try, and certainly the color of the sky, to try to determine the intensity of the storm. Unless they had a report from a ship, and the only way to get the report from the ship is for the ship to make it in the, into the port and give a report. Unless they had that information, the only read on intensity that they could have had would have been a telegraphed, uh, cable from Florida. Well, they didn't feel the effects of this hurricane, as we said earlier. It could have been a cable from Cuba, but remember in part one that the uh, U.S. Weather Service was in a bit of a feud with the Cubans, and so they were refusing to accept any reports from Cuba. They wouldn't have any way to know uh, how intense this hurricane was. So, on September 8, 1900, they didn't know a hurricane was coming. They didn't have a lot of experience with them to begin with, and they had no way to know how intense it would be. So by the time the Weather Service figured out that a hurricane was on the way, the morning of September 8, uh, Isaac Klein goes down to the beach. He sees what was he later learned was the storm surge, the water being pushed up in, uh, in, on the beach, the waves growing and breaking, the water, the north wind keeping the waves out. So a wall of water was piling up in the Gulf of Mexico and the rain began and the wind began to pick up. He still didn't know how intense that storm was. In the bonus episode, I talked about what it would have been like to have been a resident on September the 8th and the wives were begging their husbands not to go out into the storm. The husbands uh, displaying a typical husband bravado said, oh, it's not going to be that bad. I'm going to go to work. Uh, if it gets real bad, then I'll come home. People just going about their day almost uh, with nothing but the inconvenience of a fairly strong rain and windstorm. The children were playing in the rising water on the island, and 
Many of the adults were running down to the beach to see the big waves break over the streetcar trestle and put on what must have been quite a show. But as the wind picked up faster and faster and the rain came down harder and harder and most significantly probably the water started rising so very quickly, everyone realized that they had a problem. But by the time they realized that, whether they realized it at 11 a.m. or 2 p.m., it didn't matter. It was too late. You couldn't get home. I told the story of my great-great-grandfather, Arnold Wolfram. Arnold Wolfram was one of those individuals. He worked as a salesman in a grocery store in downtown Galveston. And he told his wife that he was going to go to work and that if the storm got bad, he would come home. And his wife begged him not to go, but he he said he's going to go. He didn't think much of the storm. And he got caught downtown. And by the time he realized what was happening, it was about the same time that another individual called to his wife that the Gulf and the Bay were meeting at 15th Street in Galveston. Now, if you know Galveston, the Bishop's Palace is on the corner of 14th and Broadway, so there's your point of reference. And the Bay and the Gulf were meeting. And so what was happening uh, was something that Isaac Klein later wrote had never been seen before. Isaac Klein, the Weather Service scientist, couldn't even conceive of that happening. Uh, But that wind pushed the water out of the bay and into the city. And the storm, of course, was pushing the water from the Gulf into the city. And, And remember that the island was at sea level. The highest point on Galveston Island was not even nine feet above sea level. So uh, one of the things Isaac Klein happened to believe, by the way, was that floodwaters wouldn't be too severe in Galveston because they'd just wash over the island. But what he was thinking about was water from the Gulf that would wash over the island and into the bay. He never conceived of the idea that bay water would flood the island and Gulf water would flood the island. And when those two bodies of water met, there was nowhere to go but up. And that's exactly what the water did. And uh, one other account that I talked about in the bonus episode um, talks about somebody being in their house and their house about to be carried away by the waves and looking out a window and seeing that water rise four feet in four seconds and realizing all of a sudden that that was not rising flood water. That was the Gulf of Mexico. Those were the waves. That was the actual Gulf had inundated the island and, and the terror that they felt when they realized they were looking out of the window of their house and down into the ocean. So that all began to occur in the afternoon. And wherever you were at that point, you sought shelter immediately. People that were downtown sought shelter in the Tremont Hotel and the YMCA building and others of the very strong-looking, at least, Victorian-era buildings in downtown Galveston. The people near their homes sought shelter in their homes or in homes of neighbors or if their house wasn't good enough, to their neighbor's house that must have been stronger. And everyone took what shelter they could. And those that didn't act immediately were the first ones caught by the floodwaters. And and by the afternoon, uh, people had already drowned. There were already sightings of drowning victims floating in that surging water. Arnold Wolfram started home. And he, by the time he left... In downtown, he had a 20-block walk to get to his house 
on 29th Street about Avenue M, which is closer to the beach, and across Broadway from downtown Galveston. Broadway's the east-west street that splits Galveston Island. By the time he got to uh, Broadway, he saw a 10-year-old boy who was about to drown, so he saved him, was walking with him, trying to get to his neighborhood, had to grab a wrought iron fence. It turns out that wrought iron fence was at the old artillery club building in Galveston. And that pulled him along Broadway for a time. He swam with that young boy across Broadway to about 27th Street. The storm water was carrying them. At this point, they were either swimming or they couldn't walk. And so they ended up in a tree in 27th and Broadway across from a home belonging to a friend of his named Rice and a rafter wedged in uh, between the house and the tree and they were able to get into the house and they survived the storm and that's where I want to start I want to start with that Sunday morning by first light the storm had passed and the waters began to recede and what's interesting about the accounts of the day many people noticed that the water receded almost as quickly as it had risen. And so Isaac Klein was sort of right. Uh, The water did wash out of the island very quickly. Um, There was just a lot more of it than he ever thought possible. And as the water receded, Wolfram's first thought was to get to his house, which he had been unable to reach, and check on his family. So he walked out of the Rice House on Broadway, down the steps, And there was still water over Broadway. He was still going to have to wade through water. Now, it's important to remember that the water that came over the island from the Gulf and from the Bay carried with it what amounted to a layer of mud, which did not recede. There was mud all over everything, all over the streets, all over the debris, all over the sidewalks. Mud covered everything. It was muddy water that he stepped into. He couldn't see And the first step he took, he landed on something soft, which almost caused him to fall. And he reached down into the water, and it was the body of a dead woman. And that's how Sunday morning greeted Arnold Wolfram and many, many, many others that fateful morning. Wolfram made his way to his house, and before he got there, and one thing that he recalled was dead bodies everywhere. He kept on, and he ran into a friend of his who had been sent by his family. Now, remember, Wolfram had no idea whether his family was alive or dead, and he didn't know where they were. He assumed they were home, but he didn't know for sure. He runs into a friend of his that the family had sent out to look for him. So that was a a happy meeting, and he made it back to his family's house. The house was destroyed. It was um, not to- it was it was tilted, and he called it tilted crazily. Uh, there's a picture of it, and uh, it was collapsed on itself. And uh, the back porch, and basically the back wall of the house was was sort of sitting on the front wall. It's hard to describe, um, but the family was okay. Unfortunately, um, Wolfram did not preserve the story of how the family survived the night. Uh, but I told some of those stories on the bonus episode. He did, by the way, manage to preserve some furniture. His rocking chair uh, survives to this day. Many of the stories of the other survivors 
were the same as Wolfram's. I think his story was typical. He got caught away from his family, and uh, in an effort to make it back that next day, uh, passed just hundreds and hundreds of dead bodies. And many others did the same. Many others, however, did not find their family safe. And many of the people walking around Galveston on Sunday morning did so with a dazed look on their face or wailing uncontrollably at the loss of their family and just the sheer destruction of the island. The storm had destroyed everything from the beach up to about Avenue Inn, block after block after block. These were all residential areas south of Broadway to the beach, and it was a debris field. What the water had done, a simple way to explain it, is is sort of carried the first row of houses into the second row of houses, into the third row of houses. Now, I'm not a mathematician, so I'm not going to attempt to do the math, but if you measure the weight of a unit of water, maybe a square yard of water, it's a lot heavier than you think. And you multiply that by thousands or millions, and you add momentum and wind, you can imagine the force. It would be tons and tons of force hitting the structures. And it just destroyed these houses. And so then the then that force of water had weapons. It had pieces of houses. It had the wind blowing pieces of houses, slate from the roof. And so now it was an all-out assault on the next row of houses and the next row. Uh, as we talked about in the bonus episode, you know, you'd look out your window and you'd see those houses being destroyed row by row by row, and your house was coming up. So those people must have just been terrified. And at the end, uh, the island was leveled. All those houses were gone. And what the storm did was that it pushed that debris up and essentially into a pile. You can imagine a gigantic bulldozer pushing that debris. Eventually, that debris would pile up. And it did. And it formed sort of a wall. So if you look at a map, and I'll put a picture of this of the map of destruction that was drawn. I'll put a picture on the website in connection with this episode. But there's an area that's very definitive behind which, and when I say behind, I mean toward the bay and from the gulf, behind that area, that line, there was only partial destruction or no destruction. Plenty of buildings in Galveston survived the storm, but most of them that did so were behind this line that I'm talking about, and the line was that debris. That debris was pushed up into sort of a seawall. Now, I hate to use that word because we're going to talk about the seawall later in the episode, but it, it, that's essentially what happened. And so it formed sort of a protection behind there. And the destruction was was mitigated a little bit. You still had the flood problems. You still had the wind problems. The flooding from behind the wall from the bay. And you still had the wind. But all those houses that were destroyed on the Gulf side were pushed up into that wall. So you have the utter destruction. And everybody that was in all those houses were dead. Most of them were dead and caught up in that debris. And the first things that people noticed on that Sunday morning were the dead bodies that were everywhere. Now I'm going to jump ahead and tell you the death toll. I'm convinced we will never know 
how many people died in that storm. I, I'm also convinced, after all the research, that there are bodies that were never found. You know, what a tragedy that that just so sad that that's the case. But that was the case. And everybody who wrote an account of what they saw that Sunday morning specifically mentions that bodies were everywhere. It, they were caught up in that debris. Uh, I saw one estimate of 3,000 bodies just in that debris. I'm sure there were more. Someone wrote that 500 bodies, they thought 500 people had been swept out to sea. Who knows? We'll never know. Um, somebody mentioned that, and this is unpleasant, but that 500 or so bodies were consumed um, by animals before they could be tended to. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but certainly that would have been occurring. You know, bodies scattered in all kind, everybody's front yard, all over the streets, just seemingly random places. Remember, the running floodwater could have carried a, a dead body anywhere on that island, and, and it did. And um, there was another account of bodies uh, miles inland uh, across Galveston Bay pushed by that storm surge. I want to say a word about the weather right after the storm. It was incredibly hot by all accounts, and the storm blew the clouds out. So you had direct sunlight and high temperatures, which was a nasty recipe for the destruction, the floodwaters, the mud, the dead bodies. It made everything a lot worse. We should also mention a little bit about where the storm went after it left Galveston. Galveston was not the only area, obviously, to be affected by this storm, and it crossed the bay and into Houston. Houston suffered a lot of damage. Um, all the towns in the area suffered damage. There were there was a tally written in 1900 of the estimated damage to many of the towns around uh, Wharton, which is some distance from Galveston, was uh, damaged heavily. Fort Bend County, Richmond, all the way up into Hempstead, Waller County. The storm traveled all the way to the Great Lakes. There were reports of heavy damage in Buffalo, uh, St. Joseph, Michigan. Ships tossed around the Great Lakes. Cleveland had a lot of damage. Salt St. Marie, Michigan. Parts of Ontario. Port Huron, Michigan. The storm had obviously diminished a bit when it reached the Great Lakes, but when it, when it went over the lakes, it picked up in intensity and then eventually went off into the Atlantic, off the coast of Canada. So this storm did a lot more damage uh, than just to Galveston, but of course no other area was uh, as significantly affected as Galveston. One account uh, written shortly after the storm, there was a guy who made it out of Galveston and across the bay, and he talked about, he was trying to get on the train, and he, so he had to walk across the, from Virginia Point, which is about where, where the causeway begins, the present-day causeway to Galveston Island. And he walked on the mainland several miles to try to get the train, and there were dead bodies all over the mainland. So this storm was very destructive all the way up into the far northeast in Canada. The other thing uh, that was noted was a common observation was the stunned and tearless look on the face of the citizens who had survived. There was a newspaper writer who went down to the island 
uh, about a, almost a week after the storm. I think it was September 13th. And the writer said this, quote, The people are stunned with the merciful bewilderment which nature always sends at such a time of sorrow, close quote. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's the understatement of the year. Um, merciful bewilderment is now, people just could not comprehend not only what they had just been through, that was bad enough. And God knows what any given citizen walking the streets that morning might have seen. They might have had their child or their spouse by the hand and unable to hold them, watch them slip into the floodwaters and be gone forever and maybe never seen again. One lady was in a hotel with her husband. Her husband walked to the window of the hotel right at the moment that there was a massive depressurization of the hotel. He was sucked out the window of the hotel while she watched, never to be seen again. Maybe you saw the house collapse on the entire group, and you were the only one to emerge. Isaac Klein himself, the Weather Bureau chief, spent the night in his house, along with with, with tens of other people, and the house collapsed, and he was pushed under the water. In fact, he he wrote after the storm that he had resigned himself to die under that water. But he emerged. He emerged from the water, and his children emerged from the water and were saved. His wife, unfortunately, did not. His wife died in that storm. So you can't imagine what any given person had seen, had been through. And to come out of it is enough. But to then look around at the largest city in Texas, houses that were just gorgeous two-story, one-story houses that were just piles of sticks all around you, buildings that had collapsed, brick buildings that had collapsed, debris everywhere, and death everywhere. Merciful bewilderment does not even begin to describe it. They begin to to put those bodies in the morgue. And every single able-bodied man on the street was pressed into service. Uh, As the day went on and the military and police got organized, some of that pressing into service included a bayonet. But every man was required to work because it was going to be a Herculean task to deal with these bodies. And the urgency uh, was significant. Uh, Galveston was no stranger to disease. There had not been a yellow fever outbreak in Galveston in many, many years. But the first thing people thought of was, uh, as they wrote about it, they said that the threat of pestilence was one of the first things that they had to deal with. And so they began to gather these bodies. Now, here's the thing. When they started, they were gathering the bodies one by one because with without the... No one had talked on the telephone. Nobody from one area of the city necessarily knew what was going on in the other areas of the city. You can imagine that somebody at 13th Street who walked to 21st saw bodies everywhere wasn't aware that the person who was over on 32nd Street and walked to 21st had seen the same exact thing. And if they had known that and they had started to add it up, they would have started to understand the scale of the death, the death toll and how high it could have been. They didn't know that at the time. They just knew 
everybody knew because everybody saw wherever they were on the island bodies all around them so they knew that it was urgent but they didn't know exactly they couldn't put together how many there potentially could be so what they started to do was carry them one by one on litters either either real stretchers or makeshift litters boards that they would have picked up those were everywhere and carry these bodies one by one to this temporary morgue well think about this what if you had two blocks to walk with the body you found and you, you're walking with your litter how many bodies did you pass on that two block walk well you passed several but very quickly they discovered they had a real problem so they started loading them on wagons and it became apparent also very quickly that they were not going to be able to identify these bodies now people that went and found uh, the unfortunate death of their family or friends they would try to identify the bodies and they understood fairly quickly they were not going to be able to identify all these bodies which was an incredible additional tragedy on top of an already unspeakable loss of life that they wouldn't even have the ability to bury them according to their family's wishes so they started to assemble the bodies as quickly as they could they started to load them on wagons, and they needed an idea for disposal, and they had to do it fast. So the first idea they came up with was to load them on a barge, take the bodies into the ocean, put weights on them, and dump them. And the way they compensated the men who had to collect these bodies and deal with them was they kept an unending supply of whiskey flowing to those men because without that whiskey they would not have been able to do their job and I, and that probably sounds silly and to our 2016 years but back in 1900 I can absolutely understand how those people must have felt there was no other way for them to cope with this task that they had to complete so they gathered the bodies they put them on a barge one person wrote of seeing the barge and estimating 2500 dead bodies stacked on a barge anonymous and alone 2500 just a horrible scene for everyone but deemed necessary and the most efficient and so off the barge went they called it a funeral barge and they took it out into the gulf and they put weights on the bodies and they threw them overboard and that was the best they knew to do that was a miscalculation what happened was that many of the bodies uh, hundreds by many accounts hundreds washed back up on the shore well that wasn't going to work and so the next idea was to cremate them when we talk about cremation in 2016 cremation is a very heavily regulated process these days there not every funeral home is licensed to cremate bodies you have to 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 cremate a human body you have to get the fire uh, extremely hot and it is a specialized process in 2016 but back then it was the second best thing they thought to do and so they began to stack the bodies into piles and set fire to them and yes you can imagine uh, that it was every bit as gross as it sounds uh, but the the hauling out to sea was not going to work and it was abandoned so they began to uh, pile the bodies up on the street and set fire to them the gruesome task of cremation couldn't take place all at once. And remember that the pestilence threat was a real one. The stench over the island was almost intolerable. So something had to be done. And as people 
walked around the island, saw the bodies, attempted to start the cleanup before maybe they even knew about the cremation process and before everything could get organized, bodies were buried. Uh, There were a lot of bodies buried on the beach. Uh, There were a lot of bodies buried just in available open spaces. There was even reports of people burying bodies in their yard for lack of another place to do it. All of those reports assure us that those bodies were later moved to the cemeteries when the ground had dried out. We can't know that for sure, but um, we can hope. The cemeteries, by the way, there was one firsthand account that talked about the cemeteries giving up their dead. Now, back in 1900, along with the understated writing talking about merciful bewilderment and such, they would have left that out. So there was really not much discussion of what was happening at the cemeteries, although later historical accounts of other things uh, discuss grave sites and such in Galveston that were lost during the 1900 storm, so certainly that would have occurred. There was another problem, though, starting almost immediately, and that was looters and thieves. It is incredible to me, and hopefully incredible to you, uh, that people will pray on tragedies like the 1900 storm, but they absolutely will. And it's truly sickening, but there are so many accounts of people stealing jewelry from dead bodies, and not just a little bit. Uh, Rings, earrings, uh, and particularly gruesome was the fact that many of these savages would cut the fingers off rather than try to get the rings off the swollen fingers. They'd cut the ears off. And many, many people were caught in that situation. There's one quote from someone writing in 1900. Here's the quote. Galveston was practically in the hands of thieves, thugs, ghouls, vampires, and bandits, parentheses, some of them women, who robbed the dead, mutilated the corpses which were lying everywhere, ransacked business houses and residences, and created a reign of terror which lasted until the officers in command of the force of regulars stationed at the beach barracks sent a company of men to patrol the streets, close quote. Obviously, it was a terrible situation, and we'll talk about martial law in a minute. So there was quite a bit going on almost immediately. Um, Oh, one thing I forgot to mention, don't forget, there were not just people, but animals, thousands, horses, dogs, cats, animals of every kind killed in this storm too, and they were everywhere. So that just added to the gruesome task of cleaning up. Uh, One lady, uh, her house collapsed. She had a parrot, a pet parrot, and her house had collapsed. The parrot had found his way to the attic. She recovered her parrot. He survived the storm, and as she went back to try to figure out where her house was and all the debris, she heard that parrot talking and recognized him. So at least that was one small happy story in the midst of all the destruction. But I told you earlier, this is a story about recovery. And so I want to talk now about the recovery. By 10 a.m. the morning after the storm, the mayor of Galveston had called a meeting of city leaders. By 2 p.m. the Sunday after the storm, not 24 hours after the worst natural disaster in American history, there were committees appointed for the relief of the citizens. They wasted no time in beginning the recovery process. Galveston at that time, like many cities, was divided into wards, and each ward had a relief center in it. Uh, The ward's sort of like a district. And the Citizens Relief Committee was in place, and they began 
to organize the cleanup. You think about it, there had to be, the people had to be fed. And uh, in addition to all the cleanup, uh, the bodies needed to be identified. Uh, people needed to be identified, needed to be accounted for. And all of that work began immediately. But I referenced also the looting of those dead bodies. You think about uh, a total destruction of the city. Everybody was a victim. The police officers were the victims. Uh, the, all the first responders that we count on and frankly take for granted every day, they too were storm victims. And that had to be organized. And I want to tell you uh, how it was organized, but I want to focus on an interesting individual who was in Galveston during the storm and give you a little bit of a flavor how they restored the order. It was a man named Lloyd Failing, and he had come to Galveston uh, to represent a publishing house out of the Northeast. He had been a war correspondent in Cuba before the Spanish-American War, and when that war started, he left his post as a newspaper man and out of a sense of duty, went back to the United States to try to raise some volunteers. Later, he was assigned to Galveston as part to represent that publishing house. And right after the storm, he immediately reported to the chief of police. Now, this is a little bit of a funny story. I mentioned in episode or in the bonus episode that there was a boat floating down with a bunch of women and children in it, and somebody grabbed it and they actually floated it inside a building. Well, Lloyd Failing was involved in that. So Failing took some prisoners that night. There were some people in that building that tried to steal that boat. And so he had a load of prisoners on Sunday morning after the storm. So he takes these prisoners down to the chief of police. He reports to the chief of police. Hello, chief. I'm here reporting for duty. And by the way, I've taken these lawbreakers into custody. Well, obviously there was nothing they could do with them. There was no jail left. And so, um, Failing wrote after the storm that he gave them a stern lecture and sent them on their way. Anyway, Failing uh, reported for duty to the chief. The chief asked him to organize the militia wherever he could find them. There were some regular army troops on the island stationed. Uh, it was called Battery O. And, of course, they were wandering around storm victims, too, as I mentioned. But Failing was asked to get them together. Well, when Failing was done, he had organized 300 men. Uh, to restore order. And the way Failing describes it is that many of these soldiers were just wandering around aimlessly, and he was afraid they wouldn't obey civilians. So he put on his loudest, sternest military officer tone and got most of them to fall into ranks. He then found a bugler that belonged to that army unit, and so he had him blow assembly across the island, and that flushed a few more out. And he also found some police officers. So he had managed to get a group of about 300 people together. He found a, a citizen, a civilian, who had had Army officer experience, so he commissioned him on the spot. They ended up scraping up uh, all sorts of supplies, not very good at scraping up uniforms, but they had arms, they had ammunition, they had what they needed. So he had executed his orders perfectly and was put in charge of the law and order piece of the storm recovery. Now, the biggest problem that they had immediately were the looters that I mentioned. Failing gave two orders. The first was close all the saloons, which you can imagine Texas in 1900, the first businesses to open the, follow, the day following the storm were the bars. He ordered all the saloons closed, and then he ordered that anyone who was caught stealing from a dead body or desecrating a corpse was to be shot on sight. Now, in 2016, 
that's hard for us to wrap our arms around. But that was that was necessary in a disaster like that. That was absolutely a necessary order, and that's the order that he gave. And so there are multiple accounts of thieves and looters being shot on site. The Wednesday following the hurricane, there were 100 thieves executed. At one point, the soldiers had captured 50 individuals that were stealing. Now, they saw them doing this, no question of their guilt. And they put all 50 up against a wall and executed them right there without any sort of process. Now, again, in 2016, and especially uh, me being a judge, you know, that really shocks the conscience. But I'm going to tell you, this disaster was so bad uh, that that's how they felt they needed to do it, and they did it. Um, There were also lots of accounts of people lying about being relief workers to try to get onto the island and loot and steal. And so uh, the military took care of that, and, and they handled it pretty well that uh, crime didn't turn out to be that big a problem according to those accounts. Failing also managed to uh, find some stray horses that had survived the storm so he had a little cavalry unit and he marveled when he wrote about what had happened during the recovery he marveled at the ability of the soldiers the cavalrymen to cause these horses to climb up these piles of debris and to jump uh, piles of debris that Uh, on horses that had never been trained to jump. But here's his quote after reciting all the amazing things these cavalry riders were able to do. Here's his quote. Of course, this was in Texas, where these fellows, right from the cradle, are taught to ride. Close quote. So there you go. Texas was, the spirit of Texas was evident right away. Well, Adjutant General Thomas Scurry eventually came to Galveston and relieved uh, failing, and failing was universally commended for his able service. Uh, the martial law that was imposed certainly wasn't pretty, but it was necessary. And failing went on to Houston with a group of men to raise some relief money. He later raised relief money around the country, having seen firsthand the destruction of the storm. He also had an interesting experience. Clara Barton had come to Houston, the founder of the Red Cross, and she wanted to go to Galveston and help the relief efforts herself. And so Failing was put in charge of escorting her onto the island. Well, the relief efforts for Galveston from around the U.S. and around the world began almost immediately. Now, disaster relief or emergency management, as we call it today, is much, much more sophisticated. But of course, back then, the only internet they had was the telegraph. So the mayor issued a message to the rest of the country, and uh, ironically enough, or coincidentally enough, I should say, it was issued on September 11th, 1900, and here's what he wrote. Galveston, Texas, September 11th, to the public of America, a conservative estimate of the loss of life is that it will reach 3,000, or at least 5,000 families, are shelterless and wholly destitute. The entire remainder of the population is suffering in greater or less degree. Not a single church, school, or charitable institution of which Galveston had so many is left intact. Not a building escaped damage, and half the whole number were entirely obliterated. There is an immediate need for food, clothing, and household goods of all kinds. If nearby cities will open asylums for women and children, the situation will be greatly relieved. Coast cities should send us water as well as provisions, including kerosene oil, gasoline, and candles. Close quote. 
So that was the first plea for help to go out from the Galveston mayor. And it was answered. The, the Citizens Relief Committee later put out a, a plea mainly for money. That's what they needed the most. The cities around Galveston and the nearby area, I'll describe it, uh, sent clothes, sent food, sent water, sent volunteers. What they really needed was money uh, to begin rebuilding the island. And that call was put out by the Citizens Relief Committee. Not only money was sent to Galveston, uh, the Southern Pacific Railway Company sent some money and also started some trains. Uh, Chicago created a train load of supplies, and they sent it down to Galveston by rail. The state of California did the same thing. The railroads hauled all these relief supplies for free. They even had a little contest amongst themselves to see who could get the supplies to Galveston fastest. One heartwarming story was a little school child in Chicago who wrote a letter to the paper suggesting that the school children donate their pennies for the victims, and they ended up raising several thousand dollars doing that. One of the citizens in Chicago who had seen that letter in the paper recalled living in Galveston in 1871 when Chicago had their great fire and that the school children in Galveston had done the same thing. So that was a great story of of people chipping in to help each other out. Well, I mentioned uh, relief from all over the U.S. Let me tell you some numbers. Uh, Chicago had raised over $100,000 by September the 18th, 10 days after the storm. New York had raised 300000 St. Louis, 70000 The list of cities, every major city in the United States had raised thousands of dollars for Galveston. The U.S. embassies overseas were sending money. The citizens of Paris, France, raised money for Galveston and sent it to Germany. The Germans sent a bunch of money. It really was a countrywide and worldwide effort, and that just shows you the impact that Galveston was having at that time. And as this relief came in, the citizens stayed hard at work. By September the 17th, streetcars were running in Galveston again. Obviously, the whole system was not back up, but that was progress. You can imagine when you wake up on September 9th and see the utter destruction of your home, any small civic achievement, any sense of return to normalcy would be welcomed. Well, that streetcar ran on September 17th. A temporary bridge for trains was in service by September 21st so these supplies could reach the island. Those trains were the key. Another key to the commerce on Galveston Island about the same time was one of the grain elevators that loaded the ships. That fired up. Elevator A. Elevator A started and entered into service about that September 21st time frame and actually loaded a ship with wheat. They had saved the wheat and uh, loaded the ship with wheat. So that was a huge achievement for Galveston and definitely would have improved the morale of the citizens. Well, after the storm uh, recovery and the bodies had been buried and the infrastructure was being rebuilt, Talk turned to how to protect the island. I'm sure many of the people on Galveston were tempted to leave. In fact, many did leave. Uh, They were refugees at the time. Many didn't return, but many did. The island being flat to sea level, it would have been very tempting to say, never again will I want to go through this. But the same spirit that built Galveston, that cleaned it up, inspired the rebuild About a week after the storm, the Galveston newspaper wrote the following, Our homes must be rebuilt, our schools repaired, 
and the natural advantages of the port must sooner or later receive our earnest attention. We have loved Galveston too long and too well to desert her in the hour of our misfortune. We must look to the light ahead. Close quote. So that was an inspiration for the citizens of Galveston. Well, one of the great ideas for Galveston was a seawall. Now, man has always tried to tame the ocean and tried to create harbors for the ships, and uh, seawalls were nothing new. In fact, King Herod, in the time before Christ, built jetties in uh, near Caesarea. He built them out of volcanic ash, and they used some fairly advanced technology for the time. He would uh, drive wood pilings into the seafloor to create forms and pour this stuff in there. Um, I can't remember the name. There's an Italian word that describes that volcanic ash that basically turned into concrete. So if any listeners out there remember what that's called, please let me know. But I do know that he built a harbor, and uh, this was before Jesus' time. In the 1600s, uh, there was a great flood near London. The Thames River flooded, and and uh, the Londoners built seawalls to try to protect them. So Galveston knew it can be done, and the spirit of the people per- demanded that it be done. As recently as 1886, Galveston had contemplated building a seawall. Now remember, 1886, Indianola was fully and finally devastated by a hurricane. So they had considered this before, but nothing was done. Well, this time something was going to be done. So there was a board of three gentlemen appointed to look into what kind of mitigating uh, structures could be built in Galveston. One was Alfred Noble. Now, this is not to be confused with Alfred Nobel. Uh, Alfred Noble was an engineer from Chicago. Chicago had faced a similar problem, and they needed to raise their streets and raise the city, which they had accomplished, and Alfred Noble was involved in that. Another gentleman from Galveston was named H.C. Ripley. He would be familiar with the resources that Galveston had to offer. The other was a gentleman named Henry Martin Robert. He was a general. He had been a combat engineer in the Army. And the more interesting story with General Robert is he is famous for something totally outside his field of engineering. Once in New Bedford, Massachusetts, he was leading a church meeting. Now, you all know what church meetings can be like. Well, he lost control of that church meeting and was highly embarrassed and vowed never to let that happen again. So he studied parliamentary procedure, and he drafted a book consisting of rules of order, and that is Robert's Rules of Order, a book that we still use today. So that was Henry Martin Roberts' claim to fame, and he was on the seawall board. Now I'm going to give you a brief summary of the seawall construction, because truly the Galveston seawall deserves its own episode. But uh, they proposed a 17-foot seawall that would run for three miles, and they also proposed to raise the entire city of Galveston and gently slope it toward the bay side. So what they did, beginning in 1902, was to take 40 to 45 foot pilings of good old East Texas pine and drive them into the sand, into the clay of Galveston Island under the sand for a three mile long stretch. Then they built the apparatus to pour the concrete into forms that they had built over the pilings. And when I say apparatus, they had four sets of railroad tracks behind where the seawall was going to go. And after they drove those pilings, the first set of railroad tracks was used to haul granite stones into place that would form the riprap in front of the seawall. 
and they had some very specific specs for the stones. They would they would never use any granite less than 18 pounds. Half of the stones that they used had to be more than 200 pounds, and one-fifth of the stones that they used had to be over 1,000 pounds. So that extended into the Gulf and lessened the impact of the waves. Then they built some concrete manufacturing machines, some concrete mixers, put those on the rails, and poured the concrete for the wall. And when they were done, they had a 17-foot concrete wall to protect Galveston from the ocean. And just a reminder, I'm going to do, uh, I think, a separate episode on the actual engineering and building of the seawall. It's fascinating. But that didn't end their work. They had to raise the city of Galveston. So every building behind that seawall got raised on jack screws. And now think about this. Every single building, that includes the massive stone churches, all the stone buildings, all the houses. Everything got raised so that fill could be pumped in to raise the level of the island. Special dredges were constructed solely for this purpose. They built pipes. They cut a canal through the island so that they could sail these dredges up. They built pipes that would pump slurry from the bay onto the island and into these quarter-mile sections that they had formed off. And the slurry would, the water from the slurry would drain off and the sand would be left. And this, by this method, they raised the island 17 feet. And when that project was completed, you had the Galveston that you see today. And some of the things that are interesting to notice are some of the old houses that were here in 1900 that look like they have half a basement at ground level, or perhaps their fences are a little bit shorter than they should be. And that is all from the raising of the island. So everyone alive today that goes to Galveston is used to seeing the seawall and the plenty of room between the city and the water, but it wasn't always that way. And I think that the seawall construction, and particularly the raising of the island, is one of the truest testaments to the spirit of Texas and the ability of man to come up with a solution when he wants to that I've ever seen. It's truly incredible. You might you might rank... Uh, space flight above it, but I wouldn't rank much else above it. It really showed that Galveston might be down from time to time, but it was not going to be out. And that, my friends, is the Texas spirit. Well, the 1900 storm wasn't the last hurricane that would hit Galveston, but it, it definitely was the one that did the most damage. Galveston would survive other hurricanes. The seawall proved itself in 1915. In 1915, a hurricane of almost equal force to the 1900 storm hit the island, but the the death and destruction was so dramatically less that you don't even today hear much about the 1915 hurricane. So that seawall was a great investment. The final piece of the seawall, they've extended it many times, east and west, uh, was finished in the 20s, and Galveston has enjoyed its protection ever since. But the discussions of hurricane protection continue, even in 2016. In 2016, we're discussing what's commonly termed the Ike Dyke, which is designed to protect uh, a storm, the island, the mainland, the bays, from a storm surge, uh, named, of course, after Hurricane Ike. And so there are many discussions uh, going on about some sort of infrastructure to build. So this problem does not go away. 
The Gulf Coast will always be susceptible to hurricanes, unlike what Isaac Klein thought. It's not an accident when one hits Texas, and one of these days, uh, one equal to the 1900 storm will hit again, and I hope that we will be prepared. Now we come to the segment of the show called Getting There, where I tell you how to visit some of the sites I've talked about in the episode, and I'm going to do this one a little bit different. We've uh, This has been a long episode, and I appreciate you hanging in for it. The 1900 storm was such an incredible disaster. We had to give you the thorough overview I've left some room in these episodes to talk about more specific things in the future, and I'll certainly do that. So for getting there, we're going to give you a broad interview, a broad overview also. Walk anywhere downtown on Galveston Island, and you'll be walking in the area that was devastated by the 1900 storm. If you go south of Broadway, and by south of Broadway, I mean to the Gulf side of Broadway and east of probably 30th, that entire area was leveled. You won't see any structures that survived the storm were very few. Picture that area as a residential area and just a pile of debris after the storm. If you want to go to the spot where Arnold Wolfram spent the night in the tree, go to 27th and Broadway. Walk around downtown, which was the center of commerce. Walk down to the levee building on Market and 23rd. That building housed the Weather Service office and uh, you'll know you're at the right place. The proletariat gallery and bar is there in the ground floor. That's where the weather service office was. If you walk the streets from east to west or west to east, you'll be walking where the people were walking downtown as the storm came in. If you go down to the end of 25th Street where it hits the Gulf, you'll see the present-day Pleasure Pier, but that's the area that Isaac Klein went down and observed the waves the morning of September 8th. But what I want you to do when you go down to Galveston is look around and marvel at the ability of that island to recover and imagine the total devastation and the ability of the people and the desire of the people and the will of the people to come back. That's the story of the 1900 storm. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of Wise About Texas. Say a prayer for the victims of the great storm of 1900. And until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.